You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Cool. So <laughs> I feel like we, we've we got a lot of questions to cover, so shall we go rapid fire for the remaining ones? Okay. Let's do cool. it. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, Tagai, you had some uh, thoughts on feet and knees in the squat. A lot of sort of uh, there's a lot of stuff about knees and knee valgus during the squat and knee forward slide and things like that. So working from sort of top down with the knees. Now there's a difference in the range of movement that you can flex your knees actively versus passively. So active flexion is muscle related activation, and passive flexion is what you can put your range of motion through without your muscles. So the length of excursion of the hamstrings means that. You can flex your muscles, flex your knee actively less than you can passively. And you can all do this if you stand up and you try to bring your heel to your bum. Most people cannot get their heel to their bum actively. But if you reach around, you grab your ankle and pull it, you can touch your bum with it. Now, if you reciprocate this movement to the bottom of the squats, if you have someone going actively down to the deepest portion of the squats and then coming back up, the back up will be with with inactive hamstrings there therefore if you have inactive hamstrings you have a purely anterior force on the knees and especially with people who have acl deficient needs uh, like myself i've had an acl reconstruction that is a forward movement that is unbalanced in the knee additionally uh, the meniscus so the shock absorber in the knee is under its highest pressure from 90 degrees onwards in the knee so I know that there's a lot of proponents of sort of the, uh, you know, the ATG squat and getting your hamstrings to touch your calves and things like that. But I think one thing that I've always been aware of in my training, and then especially if I have a patient who comes in with meniscal pair, uh, pain, uh, so meniscal degeneration, meniscal tears, uh, who gets pain as a result, and also with patellofemoral pain, where patellofemoral, so patellofemoral joint is the joint between the kneecap and the femurs or the thigh bone, okay? And the force in that joint is highest in, in deepest deflection. So I advise all the patients that I see with meniscal tears or patellofemoral pain to squat to just pass parallel, but no longer. Because the minute you take the hamstrings out of the movement, you get a, it's not ACL neutral anymore. There's an unopposed okay. force on the patella. Exactly. There's an unopposed force on the knee, and patellofemoral forces are higher, and the force on the menisci are higher. So I, in my training, I tend to try and get to parallel and uh, pass parallel, and that's it. I'm not telling people – I'm not saying that people should quarter squat, half squat, but you don't necessarily need to touch your butt on the floor. How do you feel about – so I have one client in particular that I think is probably listening to this. His name's Dan. And he, no matter what he does, cannot get into a squat stance or a squat position whereby the range of motion will naturally cease at just below parallel. So his yeah. full range of motion will take him, you know, as close to Asta Grass as I think anybody could possibly define. So how do you feel about... Looks like he the, almost goes beyond, actually. His hips I mean, seem to it's weird. Like his hips almost his... like dislocate and, and come back <laughs> around again. He's like a transformer. Um, but he would have to artificially limit range of motion at just below 90 degrees where you're saying the forces on the knee are greatest how do you well, feel about uh, someone actively stopping range of motion 
and reversing the squat at that point just to prevent what you're saying. So one one thing that I did say is that people with patellofemoral pain and meniscal okay. Okay. Uh, so if you have those two things, then my advice would be to to limit your depth. And I I have an uh, I have an ACL reconstructed knee. I got I used to get patellofemoral pain until I started squatting like that. And all the patients that I've seen who who do squats, uh, who get pain in their knees, don't do them properly. However, if you're a person who has no problem with their knees and that's the way you squat, well, I can't argue that and say you're going to injure yourself because that, that may not be true. But if you have had an injury, and I know what it is, and you want to train around that injury, that's the way that I would modify it. And I think there's a question about patellofemoral pain, and someone mentioned sort of a, a rehabilitation after a, a patellar fracture where that would apply as well once the fracture is healed. That's what I would do. I would minimize force on the patellofemoral joint by reaching depth so that the hamstrings are active but not going past their zone of activity. So perhaps switching from a more knee-dominant squat to a more hip-dominant squat, uh, maybe the, the QTU, so maybe like a low bar, breaking at the hips first and keeping the knees out and in place so that you use your adductors and your hamstrings to bounce out of bottom in that case maybe what he needs to do. Makes okay. sense. So that answers Jay and Callum's questions on persistent anterior knee pain and patella fracture. So Jay yeah. asks, um, how do I keep my SI joint healthy? I, I think a lot of the SI joint stuff is very related to the, um, the, the lower back pain stuff that we talked about. The SI joint is intrinsically an immobile joint. So if the ligaments around it are working well, uh, and you haven't had a major trauma to injure them, and by major trauma, the people I see injuring the ligaments around their SI joints are people who have been in motor vehicle accidents. But other than that, the other subgroup that uh, gets uh, SI joint problems are those with inflammatory arthropathies. So inflammatory arthropathies are joint diseases due to inflammation within the, the body from one reason or another. The typical one that, that, that we deal with is ankylosing spondylitis, which is a, uh, where the body has, um, for one reason or another, attacked its own joints, specifically the ones in the axial skeleton. So that means the central one, the, lump, uh, the, um, the spine and the sacroiliac joints. So I think in terms of keeping them healthy, I think you want to, to encourage a environment of stability within them and doing all the stuff that you do for your core uh, will transfer very well to SI joint health. That makes sense. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, Jay's also asked, how do you personally fit your training around your surgical schedule? Yeah, I, I wake up at five in the morning. I go straight downstairs to my kitchen, have some instant oats and some protein, have a pre-workout with caffeine, um, like 200 milligrams. And I go into my garage where I have a power rack and, um, uh, and weights. And I hit the weights for an hour to an hour and a half before I take a shower and go to work. Wow. Uh, that, it's, it's done. It's out of way. And I have no excuses in the rest of the day to not do it. Okay. And, and so I'll do that at least three times a week. Question off the back of that then. I'll try and keep this brief. Early morning training is criticized a lot. Yeah. One of the reasons it's criticized is people talk about hydration of the, of the back and things like that. Higher injury risk, lower core temperature, higher pain, or lower pain tolerance first thing in the morning. Like Lots of reasons why early morning training. I, I appreciate you're not doing it because it's theoretically optimal. You're doing it because it's time you can carve out your schedule to consistently train. Yeah. There's a lot of people that we coach that I know. I've done it myself. We train first thing in the morning. Is there any anything that you should avoid training at that time? Or is there anything you should be doing prior to training at that time to 
reduce injury risk or, or maximize the, the outcome of the session? So the things that I've done that have helped and from the reading that I've done is hydration, absolutely. So with those instant oats and the protein shake, I drink it in a lot of water. And I also have a one-gallon container of water with me uh, from, from, from when I wake up, and I just sip on that. I might not finish it during the workout because otherwise I'll be constantly going to the bathroom. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, that's, that, that's, hydration is very important. The, the night before I train, I might have a slightly more high-carbohydrate carbo, meal, especially if I train that day as well to replenish glycogen stores so I have the energy for it. The caffeine helps for just being more alert. And the other thing that I've done that's helped me is the first exercise I do is never a deadlift or a squat. So I start off with benches and uh, so pushes and pulls, which allows my body temperature to warm up, my spine to wake up a little bit. And that way, when I get under a bar with uh, or hold a heavy bar in the hand, uh, it feels like less of a shock to the system. So that that's how I've organized it. And again, people will argue and say, Oh, it's not competition specific. Well, number one, I don't comp I don't compete very often. Uh, and number two, it allows me. I'm doing a lot of stuff suboptimally by training in the morning, by choosing to to bench and row or or overhead press and pull ups, pull downs, whatever before I squat and deadlift. But it's all for the sake of being consistent, which I think is the most important thing. For sure, I think it's a bit of a moot argument to say. It's not competition specific. Like everything we do in life isn't competition specific. So yeah, never leave like, your chair unless it's a squat, bench, or deadlift. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So we've, yeah. we've got to yeah we've got to get things in somehow. Um, Jay is actually I think he's either a med student or a junior doctor, and so he's said, "Do you have any recommended specialities for gym bras?" Oh, I see. That's what he meant by that. Okay, I was I was wondering what the question was. Uh, yeah. So. It depends on how what you want to. I think if you're really into the sort of athletic components, uh, you've got really two options, and that is either to become an orthopedic surgeon or to become a uh, sports medicine specialist if you live in this country. So sports medicine is via the GP route and does not involve any surgery. Uh, so you'll be going through general practice as a whole, and then you will get into your sports medicine uh, training, which is competitive, especially for for GP training, which is less competitive than, say, or orthopedic training. With orthopedic training, you have to bear in mind that this country does not have a uh, sports medicine orthopedic specialty. So whatever you do, you'll be dealing with cradle-to-the-grave pathologies. So, for example, I'm doing foot and ankle. Yes, I will deal with footballers who get ankle ligament injuries and, and tendon problems, but I also deal with a rheumatoid patient who has foot problems and things like that. You just need to be aware that 100% of your time, it won't be spent with sports people if you become an orthopedic surgeon. You will get to operate on them, but you won't be able to, you won't be exclusively treating those people. And if you want to do that, perhaps becoming a GP, doing sports medicine, and, and making do with the fact that you're not operating on them. And if that's the bit that interests you, then go that way. But if you have to be operating on them, orthopedics and accepting the fact that you'll be doing a whole lot of other operations and that will probably be the majority of your work. Cool. His final question was, uh, is the reverse hyper extension all that it's cracked up to be? You have to bear in mind that the reverse hyper is a very expensive bit of equipment that takes up a lot of space for one specific role <laughs> that's been created by someone who has monetary gains to, to be had by this. That's such a great answer. 
enough said, I mean, really. Yeah. <laughs> if it works for you, that's great. Keep doing it. Um, yeah. I don't have experience because I've never been to a gym that has it. I've, I've tried it before. The way that it feels is like you're trying your best to look like a flailing seal. Like you it, make the sounds as well. Yeah, and, and the facial expressions. I'm not convinced that it that it, you end up actually feeling the contractions where you where it's intended to. Like I just feel like a ton of like 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 that like body English and loads of momentum. And you're like, why did I do that? Just really uncomfortable, inconvenient, and I'm not sure I can continue doing it. So yeah, yeah. I think the argument for it, all all sort of cynicism aside, is that versus all the compressive movements that you're doing, it's a distraction thing. And I think one of the questions was about a study on inversion tables. Yeah. And I think those sort of lump together quite well. The whole distraction thing is, is uh, you know, you can always find one study that, that says that your, your intervention works. And the study that was, uh, was given looks at patients who are awaiting surgery and randomizes them to physiotherapy or physiotherapy plus inversion table. You have to bear in mind that those patients, before being listed for surgery, because it's a Newcastle study, have, have already been through the physiotherapy system. So they're doing the same thing as they were before, up to the point of the operation, whereas the people who have the inversion therapy have done something new, have done this amazing thing that's research, it's a pilot study, blah, blah, blah. So operating on that patient population is immediately flawed, in my opinion. It's, it's good for a pilot study, and they do acknowledge that there should be a randomized controlled trial, but bear in mind that the majority of the evidence about inversion tables is very mixed. And I think, again, the answer would be, if it works for you, fine. If it doesn't work for you, you don't have to do it. So that's, I mean, that's, that's going to be my answer to a lot of stuff, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I think that's a very reasonable answer. So Claire asks... I have arthritis, inflammatory rheumatoid, and it affects a large amount of my joints, especially my knees. They swell up and get weak and very painful. I'm on immunosuppressants that aren't working yet, and I have started to build my muscle to support my joints, but my knees limit what I can do because of both the pain and weakness. Is there anything that I can do that you can suggest that might help me through this, or so I can start progressing, or is it always going to hold me back? I also seem to always have a permanently sore back and neck. Is there anything I can do to alleviate this? I suppose this is more of a rheumatology question, but good to hear your yeah. thoughts on this. So rheumatoid arthritis is a very tricky one. And especially if you're on immunosuppressants, it's even even trickier because all immunosuppressants will, to some degree, a lot of them will, if your point in training is to gain strength and gain muscular size, immunosuppressants, directly or indirectly, could damage those goals uh, because part of the reaction of muscular um so your tendons, your muscles, and your ligaments respond to strength training at different rates and in different ways. And immunos, and part of that is through the immune system. And the cascade that kicks it off is immune. So if you're on anti-inflammatories, uh, anti-inflammatories, immunosuppressants, there will be uh, a delay in those things happening, or they might not happen. But I think my best advice would be to see the rheumatologist, make sure you're on the appropriate treatment, which for rheumatoid is excellent at the moment. They're avoiding some serious joint deformities, uh, deformities occurring because of the modern treatments. It would involve mitigating pain factors, so modifying the main lifts uh, in a manner to support them. So rheumatoid patients tend to have a lot of problems with their hands, their shoulders, and their elbows. So if, if I had a 
if I had a patient like that who insisted on squatting, for example, I, I would tell them to, I would see which joints are predominantly painful and I would try and mitigate those. So if they have they have hand problems or shoulder, shoulder problems are quite common, maybe a safety squat bar, maybe holding the weight in a different pattern and then figuring out a way where you can progress their strength that way would, would be my answer. So uh, it really depends on what movements are, are painful. Uh, in terms of whole body pain, which is something that can happen in inflammatory arthritis, the main treatment is going to be the medical side of things. Because once you have more than one joint involved, an orthopedic surgeon is not the best person to deal with them. There was another one from, I think you might have just deleted it, Johnny. Um, from Stefan? Yeah, similar similar thing, saying should surgery be um, something that we consider sooner or later? And as you said earlier, um, you wouldn't want someone putting a knife in your back until it's really the last resort. And so, yes. the other thing that that yes. brings up is you're presuming that surgery alters the natural history of progression of the disease, which is not necessarily the case. If you look at long-term studies of people who have back pain, who have had surgery versus no surgery, the long-term, like decade-plus functional and pain result uh, fa- uh, scores tend to be very similar and, and potentially not, not significantly different. So if you're having someone who's worried that their back is going to get worse, well, it could do, but surgery isn't going to make it not get worse. So surgery is there to deal with neural compression. So if you've got leg pain because a disc is pushing on a nerve root or you have so much bone buildup that it's, it's, it's pressing on a nerve root or you're getting spinal stenosis because all the ligaments have thickened all the facet joints have uh, have got arthritis and there's no space available for the cord and you're getting lumbar stenosis and it's giving you leg pain or bowel or bladder problems, then you need a surgeon to remove the pressure. But other than that, I think it would be a very, it would be a very aggressive surgeon who advises surgery just to get rid of back pain where low, no leg pain exists. So I think back to what you were saying at the beginning as well is that this is not like this is a this is a last resort. I think your yeah. comment of like you've seen what people do, what you've seen what it happens to someone's back during surgery, and you want that as to never happen to you if, if at all possible. So Absolutely. yeah, okay. Well, I think in general, would you say any people who are asking like things that are specific to their situation, like it's a very specific problem that's something they've experienced, would you always say physiotherapy? GP, like seek seek some sort of advice first before trying to self-diagnose or self-treat? It depends on your level of knowledge, I think. If you're very knowledgeable, knowledgeable about it uh, and you, you think you know what you're doing, it's probably sensible to do the, the sensible things. You know, with the advice that I've given today, a lot of it is my opinion. And um, although I am a doctor, I'm not your doctor and I'm not the doctor of the listeners. So if you have a very specific problem and you're needing help with that problem, go to someone who can listen to you on a personal level. Uh, Because like I mentioned before, back pain, leg pain, knee pain, all these are very heterogeneous things. You know, saying, oh, my knee pain, my knee hurts when I squat. What do I do about it? Well, that's not enough. You know, you need to get into specifics with someone who's going to listen to you, has the time to listen to you, and then come up with a plan for you and you have to be aware, you need to give them a chance. You know, you need to trust them, you need to give them a chance to help you because sometimes the first thing they try may not help. I think there's probably some resistance, especially in the UK, to sort of use 
frontline care when you have like back pain or, or knee pain that you know is, is related to lifting because the standard advice at least that i've received oh, well, you is, should stop always lifting been... all those heavy weights then shouldn't you, you exactly start... <laughs> exactly so it's like oh my knee hurts well when does your knee hurt oh well it's only when i have like 200 kilos on my back and i i try and bend down as far as i can and then stand back up with it and i'm like well just stop doing that then and no one wants to hear that as a as an answer so i think there's a resistance of a, of, a, of a like a journey to like oh well i'll try and find the answer online myself yeah but i think from what you're saying is find someone that, that will actually listen to your problem that will actually sort of meet you where you're at there is a professional at dealing with these situations to yeah. help you work through it rather than unless you have the knowledge to, to self-diagnose and self-treat yeah absolutely and you know sometimes you need to do some research about that for example i think uh if I had a problem with my back and I did some research into, so I looked at which physiotherapists have treated club level footballers and rugby players in my area. Those are always the ones who have more interest in people who want higher level performance. And it's worth your time doing some research about that and trying to get referred to those people. Trouble is some of them might be private and you know, you just have to make a decision whether or not you want to throw money at the situation like that. But, you know, if you want to speak to, if you want to keep doing what you're doing and you have a problem and you've exhausted the things that you're able to do yourself, you, you need to get help with it. It's a good tip to find out who's, who's been treating athletes that are seeking higher performance and go for them. And I always think like out of everything that you could spend your money on, spending it on your health is the top priority because this is the only vehicle that you're, hundred percent going to be in for the rest of your life like until body swaps and head transplants become a, a common thing within that as well like i think people resist paying for help with like solving an issue or an injury or a pain that, are, that is preventing them from doing something that they structure like hours of their week around that there's a real passion and so paying to get as you as you were saying to guy like if it might go private but ultimately like if lifting weights is something that you really like doing and you see yourself doing for years to come. It's worth an investment to help you get out of this problem or help you prevent the problem getting worse. Yeah, I completely agree. So Ben Shepard asks, is lordosis real and is it a problem? So lordosis uh, is a natural position of both the cervical and the lumbar spine. Kyphosis is a natural position of the thoracic spine. So cervical spine is neck, lumbar spine is lower back, thoracic spine is what's in the middle. So those are the natural positions. So there's a natural S-curve. Uh, some people have increased lordosis for various reasons, some good, some bad. And other, others have it because of uh, genetics. So that's just the way that they're, they're built. Others have it because they're overweight and they, their distribution of fat puts them into that position. Excessive lordosis could potentially in the long term lead to facet joint pain. So facet joints are the joints at the back of the of the spine that between different vertebrae. And excessive extension will wedge into them. And if you're getting pain because of going into extension or lordosis, it suggests that your pain is coming from your facet joints. Uh, whereas if you have more flexion pain, it suggests that you're getting pain more from anterior structures or a disc that's potentially being herniated out from from that flexion movement so lordosis does exist it's physiological unless it's excessive and there are conditions that can give excessive lordosis that are that will also give you pain and i think you should not worry about lordosis unless it's related to pain uh, so for example a lot of um, afro-caribbeans will have a naturally more lordotic spine uh, in their lumbar spine and that's 
that's uh, you know the that's part of the um the variation that we have in anatomy whereas in the same breath there could be someone who's got a defect in their vertebral body uh, caused the forward slip of one vertebra on another that's called spondylolisthesis and that can give you a lordotic posture which can then lead on to pain so you'll notice that one has pain and one doesn't so if there's no pain i wouldn't worry too much about lordosis unless it's causing back pain so i suppose if we look at the common cause of lordosis related back pain of say facet joint pain is there anything you'd recommend training wise as an application to correct that that within your own training and within stuff that you can do yourself so i probably wouldn't arch my lower back too much i would try to get my pelvis into uh, less anterior tilt so you want to put it into posterior tilt. so you want to tuck your bum underneath your rib cage so i think that's how i would mitigate it and when you're doing squats or deadlifts what you want to avoid is doing excessive extension so you want to avoid excessive lordosis and you know you see some people doing that especially at, at sort of lighter weights work, working up they know they're round back deadlifters so they arch too much mm-hmm. and then they start getting pain because they're arching too much it's a sort of happy medium and again, it's technically incorrect to arch too much. I think I was guilty of that when I started lifting, that you're always told, like, never flex your spine. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to extend the hell out of it. And yeah, yeah <laughs> causes problems. So we've only got three questions left. Thanks for uh, bearing with everyone that's, that's asked these questions. So Nim- Nims asks, any simple routine or mobility that you would recommend to maintain a healthy back or n- back and knees that can be done weekly just to keep the body at maintenance or injury-free? Yeah, I think I sort of covered that in my sort of opinions about um, mobility and routines. I don't think anything is necessary. I, I think that if you're if you're doing your 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 main activity or your main lifts without problems, so through an effective pain-free range of motion, and you're progressing the weight weights, that's the key. If you start getting injuries, you might need to rehab or prehab those injuries. I've tried mobility routines, and none of it specifically helps me. And you know, I think it's a band-aid to, to a problem that could could be more apparent by technical correction. Uh, so having said that, if you find that there's a brief mobility thing that definitely helps you as an individual, I wouldn't argue against the use of it. So find something but, specific, not just a general routine. Yeah. And there's nothing that I would suggest, because people do like the Agile 11 or whatever it's called and things like that, and these generic mobility routines that take 10 15 minutes out of your life uh every day or whatever i mean if it's not try it fine uh, if it's not helping you ditch it uh, which is exactly what i did with those yeah. how would you recommend that someone actually evaluates whether it's helping them i think like you know most people track their training in a log don't they but uh, i mean well i say most people but most people who are serious about their training and not just exercising i think if you're, if you're tracking that and you have a problem that you want to address, you should track that as well. So perhaps let's say you get um, you get knee pain and you decide to do, I know, ankle stretches because you think you're getting knee pain because you got tight ankles. So you introduce the ankle stretches, perhaps on their own. If you introduce five things at once and it works, you don't know which of those things worked. Do your ankle stretch and every day afterwards you report on your knee pain. And if it's going from 10 out of 10 to 1 out of 10, it's worked for you, so keep it. If it's gone from 10 out of 10 to 10 out of 10, it hasn't worked for you, and get rid of it. That's and a good it's approach. the shades. I mean, that's as scientific as I can be about it, but mm-hmm. but it's it's pragmatic. So from, uh, that's from a like a rehabilitation perspective. So like I have pain or I have an issue. I'm trying to 
I'm trying to improve that. From a prehab perspective, is it just a case of exercise technique, stability, focusing on, as you say, like go for the money, go yeah. for the stuff that matters? Yeah, go for the money. I mean, if you can do the, do the movement unloaded correctly, I think that you should be able to do the, do the movement loaded correctly. And if you're doing it loaded incorrectly, that means in the process of loading it, you are introducing tightness or stiffness. Well, that can't be the case because if anything, a load will help you stretch a muscle further. So that, it doesn't make sense to me uh, that um, your ankles are, are, are very mobile when you don't have a load, but for some reason during a heavy squat, your ankles are now stiff. Mm. That, that that doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, so if you can do the unloaded uh, movement correctly, uh, you should progress the loaded movement similarly. So you mentioned that you ditched things like Limber 11, Agile 8, like all like the generic, I think what are normally prescribed as warm-ups. Yeah. Do you have like a something that, that you would suggest for warm-ups for an injury prevention? Like is it just, uh, I think the theme that I see is people talk about, you know, like, start like, get a sweat on before you touch a barbell like get warm move around a bit yeah. don't spend hours on a foam roller or or you don't use that time to address an issue get warm yeah. prior to training is that um, keeping with what you would say so if my body temperature is is good so if it's a hot day in the in the garage for example i i won't really raise my core temperature but if when i'm training in the winter it's cold in my garage so i tend to put the heater on and and I have a little stationary bike that I just use for three to five minutes to, to, to feel warm. So I think that that satisfies the feeling warm. But you can do that in any way you want. If you want to uh, you know, do a simple barbell complex or whatever, that's, that's fine as well. I think there's some evidence about dynamic stretching and that, that might help. So if I, do, um, if I do spend my time doing anything, it might be that. But I think getting, getting underneath the barbell and practicing the unloaded movements with an empty bar and then progressing it. That's that's all the warm up that I that I tend to do. I I won't do any foam rolling. I won't do any stretching. I won't do activation per se. I've tried things like doing a you know glute activation, this that to deal with knee cave. But again, that's that's been personally it's been unfruitful. And you know you go on forums and stuff. You've got a laundry list of people who seem to be trying these things and it's not working for them. Uh, so it's clearly not the I think it's a clear thing that you need to try things and see if it works for you. And, you know, there's a whole lot of information out there of people saying this is a way to correct your knee valgus or this is a way to correct your butt wink. And, but it's not the only way. I think we're huge fans of that, that approach in general. You know, not just don't just do something because you think it might, it might be a fun thing to do. Because ultimately, <clears throat> like even if, it's, even if there's no cost, like financially, like there's a, there's a time cost to spending 40 minutes activating your glutes just so you can do a squat session. You know, if you don't, if you're not getting anything out of it. But, how do you know that it's working? You know, as Paul exactly. says, am I winning and how do I know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I think the frame, the frame to approach any of this stuff with really when deciding whether or not to, to do like a 25 minute warm up routine. What can I actually measure whether this is helping me quantitatively or not? Um, yeah. Which is something I've fallen for in the past, spending like 30 minutes doing like, you know, like all this stuff in the gym before, like just before I train. And I'm not really sure why. It's just because yeah. someone's recommended that I do it. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been through that too. You know, I went and did some stuff that I thought was useful, and then I looked at my clock, and I'm like, I got to take a shower in 30 minutes not yep. to, to work. Uh, so, yep. you know, I've had to trim the fat a lot. And, mm. um, you know, that process has taken a, a few years, but I think I've got it to something that works for me. But that, I guess, is the message here. You know, you try the stuff, 
you try this stuff and it can take some time, but find what's going to work for you. And, you know, be meticulous in your documentation so that you can look back through it. Uh, you know, perhaps instead of spending 45 minutes on mobility, looking into your, your, your training log for 45 minutes to find what's made you stronger in the squats or what variation has helped you, you know, have better form in the squat, looking through your videos, maybe maybe that's better time spent. Good point. I don't know. Or even just logging your training during that time. Like yeah. keeping document, as you say, like have something you can look back on so that you can actually draw conclusions from what you're doing rather than just flapping around and, and hoping for the best. Yeah, and then if you go to someone for help, like if someone comes to you guys, if someone comes to you with a ton of information, it allows you guys to help them better as well. Exactly, exactly. So finally, just got two two more questions. Um, one of them is from Ollie Tizard, who says, following a disc injury, what should you focus on changing the most? <clears throat> should you reduce the load and try and progress those old movements, or should you change the biomechanics, such as going sumo instead of conventional to reduce the spinal shear? Oh, right, spinal shear. Okay, that's a, that's a slightly controversial subject, because um, some people argue that spinal shear, if you have... Um, muscular activation isn't really something that uh, will be a, as big a problem. Uh, so uh, I think there's two ways you can look at it. You could you could do sumo uh, in the in the pretext that it reduces spinal shear, but then you have to think about what pathologies are prone to problems because of spinal shear. If you've got disc injury, that's more likely a flexion injury. Um, so you've put instead of shear, you've you flexed your spine. So that's a that's more of a bending moment as opposed to a shear force. So a shear force is sideways and bending is bending. So for example, I have spinal lysis in my, in my, in my back. Now I've been doing conventional deadlifts for years and because I advocate a straight back, I keep a straight back and I've just gotten stronger and it's, and it's helped my back pain because of my spinal, uh, spinal lysis. So I'm not a big believer in the the exercise itself being damaging or not as long as you keep to technically good form so the conventional deadlift is a potential back injury but if you're doing it with correct form it will strengthen the muscles around the back so that you don't put yourself into the bad positions so i would perhaps argue that the, the position for, uh, the best thing for this uh, this gentleman to do would be to perhaps Concentrate on keeping a neutral spine, uh, maybe raising the, the bar off the ground until he can get into a comfortable position with his hips, knees, and back, and then progressively putting a, eventually putting a lightweight on the, on the bar, moving it to the floor, so progressively reducing it down the rack pulls or the block pulls, and then working his way up again. And what, what I think that will also teach is um, it'll teach him not to fear, fear the, the movement, It'll give him confidence in lumbar flexion because what he's doing now is being afraid that he's going to hurt himself and swapping over to sumo potentially. So if you get into that mentality, that position in my back is going to hurt me, well, it's going to hurt you. So that's my opinion. But having said that, you know, the sumo may be exactly what you need to, to do the movement more frequently because it's easier to recover from. And perhaps because of that, your back will also get stronger because there's still a, a bending moment on the spine and there's still a sheer moment on the spine with the sumo and uh, if you immediately go over to it uh you say okay well i'm gonna do sumo there's no shear in the spine that's great 200 kilos on the bar bang and you flex your spine your lumbar disc prolapse gets worse 
because you've been overconfident. Good point. I, I think it's a very complicated scenario. And I think, it's again, it's it's individual. And I think this is a scenario where if you have a disc injury, especially if it's acute or rehabilitating, then you have to uh, take some supervision from someone who knows what they're talking about on an individual basis. Makes sense. Okay, Stefan asks, okay. Uh, should alternative treatment um, instead of surgery be considered such as plasma-rich platelet injections? So PRP injections, um, I think he asked specifically about the spine. I don't know a whole... I mean, I know it's possible. It's in the early degree, early stage of research. There's some evidence to say that it works versus steroid injections in the SI joint as well as in the lumbar spine itself. But there's more evidence about PRP in things like uh, tennis elbow, Achilles tendonitis, patellar tendonitis. And the reality is that uh, a lot of it, again, is, is mixed results. There may be a confounding placebo effect even in these, these trials because you can't really blind the patient to it very well. I mean, yeah, I guess you could with PRP. You take their blood, bin it, and then give something that looks a bit like like it uh, in, but you, you can't really do that either because saline is colorless and PRP has a color to it. So it, in someone who knows, you can't really blind anyone to that. But anyway, in the in the research that's been done on of greater volume on other joints and tendons, uh, it's mixed. In the UK, it's not really massively available. Uh, because it's equivalent to other modalities, uh, like steroid injections, people tend to use steroid injections a lot. Not so much around tendons, because steroid injections into and around tendons can lead to tendon rupture. But there's other things that they that can be tried, and they're all really similar. But it is expensive, and you can get it privately. There we go, Stefan. So I think that's all the questions. We've finally finally made it through. To Guy, this, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. Some really... Likewise. Fun- great specifics and I think well, ge- general like overarching themes that people like even if back pain is something that isn't bothering or like any pain isn't bothering them right now I think things that they can actually consider to, to action and, and move forward in their training so that then they're avoiding problems potentially or maybe just spending their time a bit better as well I think certainly for me the points you made about being very meticulous in terms of know why you're doing what you're doing don't just follow general mobility routines or general stretching routines don't just blindly dive into glute activation drills because you think they might do something um, and also your points around the stability in training and really focusing on bracing as being like the priority when we're talking about spinal injury prevention was fantastic and hopefully everyone who had like the, the more specific questions on an injury that relates to them everyone who's asked a question has received a fantastic answer so I'm going to guess to guys, do you have any sort of online presence or any, anywhere that we could find more about you? And if not, is there anything that you'd advise as like a resource for yeah, people to find out more? I mean, I, I don't really have personal resources. Um, I, I do post some lifts occasionally on, on my Instagram thing, which is orthopod power. Uh, so O R T H O P O D. Uh, power um, but that's pretty infrequent occasionally I'll post like a little abstract of a study or something like that um, but that's really few and far between if anyone has any specific questions you can you can send me a message there and uh, I'll try and reply when I can in terms of resources I think in terms so given how important that uh, so McGill is a good source but very dense and complicated in regards to technique there's not a lot of great books that I've found uh, about technique and delving into the anatomy very well. I think Greg Knuckles' articles on Stronger by Science are quite good. 
uh, for the three main lifts. I think he goes into the anatomy, and uh, he's got a series of lectures with Omar Isov, uh, which is quite good, where it teaches you about stuff and things that you can do. Th those aren't bad, and I gotta say, I know it gets poo-pooed a lot, but um, the starting strength book has some suggestions that are very dogmatic and, and didactic, but are based on very solid anatomical truths. And, you know, whatever people might think about Mark Ripitel, you can't argue if he's right about anatomy, because anatomy is something that we can't argue about. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just true. Or it's, there's no gray area. It's right in front of you for everyone to observe. So, you know, but, but not everyone likes Mark Ripito, his approach to, to other people, and I, I, I get that. But, uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's an approach that's based on very solid anatomical and physiological principles. Brilliant. Okay. Well, we'll stick notes to or links to all of those things in uh, the show notes to this, to this podcast. We'll put a link to your Instagram as well. So prepare for this flood of people that are going to come uh, <laughs> with, with questions and followers and everything. So watch out. All right. All right. Well, I, I don't mind. To I'm here to help. Okay. Well, as, as long as everyone's uh, doesn't doesn't take the piss with that, I think that's uh, that's the most important thing. All right. Two guys. Simple. <laughs> it's been great chatting, um, and that's everything. Likewise. Probably thanks for um, thanks for having me on here. Thank you. Take care, guys.